From spooky legends past, down through generations, to haunted locations that hold a ghostly past. Come one, come all, come blinders and seekers, hear the creepy side of Eva. Welcome to the creepy side of Nipa. I am Dan Kozlowski. Before we get into tonight's episode, I'd like to remind everybody who hasn't done it already, please like, subscribe, or follow the creepy side of Nipa on whichever podcast platform that you're listening to us on. Also, please follow WNEP's creepy side of Nipa on Facebook. That is the best way to always be informed on the latest show information. Joining us tonight from the Berwick Area Historical Society is Jennifer Nardi. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for joining us. I guess you have been a listener for a little while now. I have, yes. I, I saw it advertised on uh, WNEP, and I've been sort of binge listening to it. So um, I think I have some stories that uh, your listeners might find interesting. Yeah, you contacted me a few weeks ago saying you had some stories from the Berwick area, and we really mm-hmm. haven't had too many from that area, so I'm looking forward to hearing your stories. Oh, great. So what's one of the first stories that you have for us tonight? Um, well, the first one I'd like to talk about is the Jackson Mansion, which is currently occupied and operated by the Berwick Historical Society. And what's great about the Jackson Mansion is that we do give tours there every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Saturday. And we also do a haunted tour every year. So if anyone is you know, interested in, in the stories that, that I tell tonight, um, then they can you know, come see us for a tour. So we can get things started with the Jackson Mansion. Is it like a museum now? Yeah, it's a, it's like a house museum. Okay. So we have the building um, almost completely restored back to how it looked in uh, 1879 when the family first moved in. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the stories with that property? Yeah. So, well, the home was built um, between 1877 and 1879 by Colonel Clarence Jackson. Um, and I don't want to give too much away, of course, about the Jackson Mansion, because I'd love for people to come on a tour. But sure. there's just a couple stories there that, from there that I would love to share with you. So the first one is that in one of the rooms, the colonel's office, we do believe is haunted by the Jackson's dog. So this is kind of a, a lighthearted story compared to some of them. And actually, all the haunts that we have in the Jackson Mansion do seem to be of the lighter, friendlier variety, um, with the exception of third floor. Third floor seems to be where our darker energies tend to go. Um, but the story of the Jackson's dog, so many guests over the years, as well as tour guides, have reported uh, both seeing and hearing a dog in the colonel's office. And which, what's interesting is that is where the Jackson's dog used to sleep. He had a little dog bed in there. Um, so a few years ago, Marilyn, one of our tour guides, was giving a tour, and she could have sworn she heard a dog barking while she was in the colonel's office. She kind of just ignored it, went on with her tour. And then at the very end of the tour, one of the guests pulled her aside and said, did the Jacksons have a dog by any chance? And she <laughs> said she didn't know. She did not know at the time that the Jacksons, in fact, did have a dog. And she said, well, I'm not really sure. And the woman said, well, I could have sworn I saw a little dog that looked like Toto from the Wizard of Oz. So she's telling me this story. And I start laughing because I know that the Jacksons had a Karen Terrier, which is exactly what Toto is. So, um, I so just, the exact in my mind, dog they described. Yes, ex- exactly what they saw. So um, in my mind, um, if you're going to have 
if your house is going to be haunted, it might as well be by a cute little dog, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not something else. So It could be a lot worse, I, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, yes. And like I said, third floor. Um, so, and then one of the other stories from there that I, from the Jackson Mansion that I'd like to share is the one story that happened to me, the strangest thing that's ever happened to me personally at the mansion. And it does involve third floor. So back in 2018, we had a room opening in one of the guest bedrooms on the third floor. And coincidentally, the third floor, we don't ever open really to the public. We open it maybe one time a year, usually for our haunted tour. So it's not, we don't get a lot of guests and a lot of traffic up there. We use it kind of for um, storage mainly. So um, back in 2018, we had the guest room opening in a bedroom that we refer to as the garrison room. And I was the tour guide in the room that day. It was a hot day in May. It was like 95 degrees. And by four o'clock in the afternoon, I was hot and sweated and just completely exhausted. I had been there since 9 a.m. And we had three or four guests left. And the curator said to me, you know, I was wrapping up the tour and he said, get these ladies some champagne. We had serving, excuse me, champagne in the hallway. And so I, I brought them out into the hallway we started pouring ourselves some champagne. We hadn't taken a sip yet, too. I think that's important to include <laughs> yeah. um, in this story. Um, but one of the guests said to me, you know, you look physically exhausted right now. Um, I, w- I just was completely sweated. And I said, yeah, and I'm really sick of talking about the garrisons. Well, that was the wrong thing to say. Apparently, um, I happened to look up. And out of the corner of my eye, I see a candle, a taper candle, come up out of a candelabra, and it launches right at my head. Oh, wow. If I, yeah. So if I hadn't looked up in the instant that I did, it would have totally hit me in the side of the face. Um, but luckily, I, I saw it coming, and I was able to dodge it. It actually landed at my feet. Um, and I looked up at the guest who was I was talking to, and she was pale and wide-eyed. And I said, oh my goodness, are you scared? You know, I was more worried about her. And she said, you know, I'm not scared, but I am stunned because I don't believe in this kind of stuff, but I know what I just saw and I can't explain it. So um, that was interesting. Yes, definitely. Something doesn't happen every day. That's for sure. No, no. Made a non-believer, I suppose into a believer. So we discussed what happened, you know, for a few moments and then we got our champagne and we hightailed it out of there. And I don't think I went back up on the third floor for at least a year. So oh, yeah, I, I don't blame you. <laughs> so one question I had that has popped into my yeah. mind, you keep saying it's yeah. the Jackson mansion, but then the, yes. on the third floor, there was another name you just used. Started. Oh, yes. So Garrison. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. And I should explain that. So the Garrisons were a local couple in Berwick. Um, they had a lot of money. They never had any children, but they did a lot for the community of Berwick. So he owned the local feed mill. She was a teacher and became eventually became an administrator in Berwick. Um, she was actually the first teacher in Berwick to ever be allowed to get married. Because in those days, women had to re, you know, remain single in order to be teachers. So they were avid antique collectors. And as the historical society, we inherited when they passed away, we inherited a lot of their things um, from their house. And they had an old historic home as well. So what we did was we took all those items and we created a garrison room. So that oh, okay. room is loaded, which is which kind of does make the story a little more interesting because I like I said, I spent my whole day in that room talking about them what they did for Berwick in a room that has 
their draperies, their light fixtures, you know, their rugs and their clothing even. So, yeah, so good question. Yeah. Just when you said that other name, I was like, is there a tie-in? Why it's so much yes, like yes, darker so that's, that's energy why. upstairs mm-hmm. there? Um, actually, from what we've been told, the dark energy doesn't really seem to be tied to them. But something I said obviously upset someone somewhere. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, you so definitely those, don't see candlesticks flying through the air too often, that's for sure. No, no, and it happened so fast. I mean, I can't even explain it in in, you know, the way that it happened. It was it was all very very quick. Now, was that on one of the haunted tours there of the property? Um the uh did that happen on at one of the haunted tours? Yeah, I remember say? you saying you had do special haunted yeah. tours. I was just wondering if that No, event this happened. was just the room. This just happened to be the room opening for the garrison okay. room. Since then, of course, that is a story that we tell well, of course, on a haunted yeah. tour every year. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> what are some of your, your favorite stories? Well, I think that at at the mansion, um, just that most of our haunts seem to c- occur around restoration time period. So whenever I heard that a lot over time. Group, yep. Yeah, that seems to be um, a common theme. So for several years, the buildings seemed to even just be dormant, like we didn't have anything happen. And then, of course, we were closed for COVID for a long time. And then we restored another room. We hadn't done restoration in many years. And we restored another room, the nanny's room, and and things started picking up again. And the nanny's room is in an area that we never had had anything happen before. So it is just a little coincidental. Um, and we have a lot of little, you know, just a lot of like disembodied voices and footsteps and from time time to time you'll hear music. Um, I actually just had a woman a few weeks ago on a tour who she had been there for our Christmas tour back in December. And when the tour was over, she wanted to let me know when I, um, when she was on the Christmas tour in Mrs. Jackson's bedroom, she was looking at like a vanity set of, um, old antique brushes and mirrors and whatnot Mm -hmm. of silver. You can picture what I'm talking about. And someone else in her tour group asked, did those actually belong to Mrs. Jackson? And she heard a voice say, they're mine. Like she, so this is the yeah, this guest telling me this. So that's definitely something that would, I'll give you the creeps. Yeah. Yeah. She actually kind of loved it. She couldn't wait to go back in that room. She told me. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know there's definitely people out there that embrace the, the spooky mm-hmm. and the creepy feelings. And I'm definitely yes. one of them, but some of the stuff, uh, like if a yeah. candlestick flew out of the air and flew at me, yeah. I'm not sure if I would running yeah, back I in that room. I don't ever. Well, and my lesson learned there is that, um, I don't speak negatively about the garrisons nor anybody else who might be in the house anymore. So lesson learned. <laughs> Probably safe that way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is there any history of the home that could have tied it to these hauntings? Was there any debts at the property itself? Well, actually, yeah, I'm glad you asked. We do know, well, the colonel passed away there in his bed. And the interesting thing about the colonel is, you know, he served in the Civil War. He was actually captured twice and escaped. Um, The first time he escaped, he was recaptured and then was traded at some point. Um, But the second time he was captured, he was at Andersonville. Um, And if there's any Civil War fans um, out there listening, that was like one of the worst prisons um, on the, the side of the South. And he was one of uh, 500 soldiers used as a human shield. Oh, and wow. he, yeah, he made it out alive. But unfortunately, um, the family moves into the mansion in 
1879, the colonel passes away just one year later in 1880. So, you know, he survived, he was only 38 years old. So he survived, you know, the, the civil war and being captured two times, being used as a human shield. And then he only gets to live in this mansion that he built um, for one year. So, you know, there is that component to it. And then the only other person that we know that died there was um, the, the house on the outside is complete is made completely of Vermont stone. And he hired um, stonemasons from Italy to come and put the stone up. And we do know that one of the Italian stonemasons fell from the very top of the tower of the mansion, fell to his death, you know, installing the stone. So that is another crazy story. And then the mansion is just loaded with all different kinds of antiques from all over. So our curator, he travels all up and down the East Coast, going to different estate sales and auctions and antique shops. And so there's just a lot of objects in the mansion that don't necessarily, you know, belong there. Right. And so I can't help but wonder sometimes if, if things aren't tied to certain objects as well. Yeah, like I, I always hear of deaths being tied into a haunting, but yeah, it could be tied into an object as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just a thought. Now, any more outside of the mansion or basically most of your stories have to do with that one property? Well, the other property in Berwick that I'd like to talk about um, is Confield. So Confield, a couple of years ago, we did a haunted trolley tour. Um, it was our, the very first haunted tour that we ever did. And that it was sounds a lot pretty of fun. cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It just was a lot like logistically to to work out, which is why we haven't done it since. But I had so much fun because I got to do all this research and I got to interview all of these people. So we we picked, uh, you know, select homes, historical homes in Berwick that, you know, the families who have occupied them over the years, you believe that the homes are haunted and they shared their stories with us. And from that trolley tour, my favorite story is the story of Confield which eventually in the early 2000s became the O'Donnell Winery. Um, Right now it's a private residence, but I'd like to share that story. Sure. And I think this is probably my favorite story because as a historian, historically what happened in this house over the years to me is even more interesting than the paranormal activity that followed it, if that makes sense. So um, It definitely does. Yeah, yeah. So very interesting stories that happened here. So the original building was built in 1802. So, you know, it's very old. And it's just outside of Berwick. So when you're leaving Berwick on Route 11, headed towards, towards Bloomsburg, it's across the railroad tracks and down by the Susquehanna River. And I just recently listened to your episode about the Susquehanna River. Um, so yes, that was our, that's our most current one. <laughs> Yes, yes. So um, we know that a lot of things happen along the Susquehanna River, and this is perhaps one of those. So when it was originally built, it was a hotel, a general store, and a post office. And it was also known to be a stop on the Underground Railroad, which we'll tie in later on in our story. Um, somewhere, you know, of course, in that, that would have been in the 1810s, 18 to 1850s. Mm-hmm. But in 1852 was when it was converted to a house. And then in 1899, this is where this story kind of begins. It was purchased by the Field family as their summer home. So they had a mansion 
right in downtown Berwick. And then they bought this house as a summer home. And Henry Field was ACNF, American Car and Foundry, brought him in to Berwick from Virginia um, to be their lead engineer. He was known as, you know, an engineering genius at the time. And he designed some of the very first railroad cars, which um, put him in cahoots with Vanderbilt and the very, you know, uh, elite New York City people. Um, And then he ended up uh, designing and building the very first New York City subway cars. So he was very well known and he and his wife were, you know, hobnobbing with all of New York City's elites. And he happens to marry a woman by the name of Catherine Jackson. And if that name sounds familiar, sounds a little uh, familiar. (laughs) It might ties in. So she is the niece of Colonel Jackson. Her father was Frank Jackson, the colonel's brother. So money begets money, right? So they get married and then they have one daughter, Mary Alice. And, um, you know, they were one of Berwick's it couples, I guess you could call it the time. You know, they were they both had a lot of money. And like I said, they were up in New York City with the Vanderbilts and and the likes of the Vanderbilts and things like that. So, you know, everything seemed to be going really, really well for the Field family. Henry was uh, also on the board of directors of of the First National Bank of Berwick, and his father-in-law, Frank Jackson, was actually president of the bank. Um, So he he had some tie-ins there. Their daughter, Mary Alice, ends up marrying Teddy Stegmeyer. And for your Wilkes-Barre listeners, they will know Stegmeyer Brewing, Another familiar name. Another familiar name. Yes. She marries Teddy Stegmeier and everything seems to be going really great for the Field family. However, um, in uh, 1929, the Great Depression hits and, you know, that that ruined a lot of families lives, even even the wealthy. And things start going downhill for for the family at that point in time. Mary Alice who was married to Teddy Stegmeier, is now divorcing Teddy Stegmeier. And she was in the middle of a lawsuit with her mother-in-law. She tried to sue her former mother-in-law, Mary Stegmeier, for, I think it ended up being, like by today's standard, would be about $2.4 million. Oh, wow. Um, it was 200000 back then, right. but I think that converts to about two to three million by today's standard. Um, so she was trying to sue her for causing the divorce. She does not win that lawsuit, <laughs> coincidentally. <laughs> um, but HP Field um, is starting to lose his mind a little bit at this point. Um, the board of directors at the bank are starting to worry about him, and he's taking out substantial loans from the bank. Now, in 1933, FDR is president, and he enacts um, the Gold Act. Little history lesson here. So, the Gold Act um, forced people to convert all their gold into paper money. So, people were still using gold as currency back then, which is kind of strange for us to think about. Um, but they had to, because of the Gold Act, they had to convert everything into paper money. So Fields takes out all these loans from the bank in gold, and then he tells his buddies at the bank that he's going to bury it because he doesn't want to convert it into paper money. Right. He's going to bury it on the property at Confield. Okay, so they know he's doing this. He took out $80,000, coincidentally, which by today's standard is about $1.8 million. 
That's right. quite substantial. Yep. <laughs> a little bit. I don't know how many people can go to the bank, but you know, his cronies were all there and his father-in-law is the president of the bank. So he's able to do this. Um, his wife by this time is now being described as a pathetic figure um, who is receiving shock treatments for her condition. And, Mary Alice, their daughter, um, she got into a little bit of trouble with the law right around this time as well. Um, at that time, they were doing construction on the Berwick-Nescapec Bridge, which goes over the Susquehanna River. And they had uh, signal flares set up to prevent cars from veering off the bridge. And she threw the signal flares off the bridge in an effort to make cars swerve off of it. Interesting. So, <laughs> so yeah, so they're, they're facing some problems. Um, so needless to say, uh, we'll fast forward a little bit to the night of July 18th, 1933. And I was thinking about this today. We're com- kind of coming up on the anniversary yeah, it's of, pretty close. Uh, of this date. Um, so we may never know exactly what happened that night, um, but I'll state some of the facts. And these are according to both the police report that was done that evening and then also some newspaper reports that followed the next day. So it was conveniently the servant's night off. So the only three individuals in the house are uh, Mr. and Mrs. Field and their daughter, Mary Alice. Catherine Jackson Field is shot in the back three times, but she lives. Uh, Mary Alice uh, suffers a, a bullet wound to the shoulder, shot as she ran for the door. And then there's another bullet that lodges into the door um, that was shot at her. She ran for the front door. And Henry Field is dead. And they rule it an attempted murder suicide. But there's only one problem with this scenario, and that is that Henry Field was shot in the head twice. Okay, so (laughs) it's a little bit there's a little bit of a discrepancy there. So um, not only that, if you're going to choose to believe that he shot himself in the head twice, the the gun um, only held six bullets in the chamber. So there were three shots fired at Catherine, two at Mary Alice And then Field would have had two more. So not only do you have to believe that he shot himself in the head twice, he would have also had to reload. Yeah, things aren't seem to add up so far. (laughs) It's a little bit of a stretch. So Catherine and Mary Alice, they wake up the next morning in the hospital and they claim that they have no memory at all of what happened the night before. They also both claim that they have no idea where the gold is, they didn't even know that the gold existed. Because, of course, at some point, the bank is coming after them to get this money back. And they both claim they have no clue about the gold. So, um, you know, it's interesting because Mary Alice then dies three years later. She's only 34 years old. I have never been able to find um, a death certificate or anything for her either, a cause of death. Um, But that seems quite young to yeah. me to pass away. Uh, Catherine ends up living on until she's 85. She lives till 1959. And that the house at that point in time is left to the caretaker. His name is Thomas Hayes. Um, and then the story is kind of lost over the years. Like I, I interviewed a lot of different people when I was, you know, doing these various tours. No one had heard this story. They knew that there had been a shooting at the house, but, but the details of the story um, 
you know, were not unearthed. Yeah, they got lost over time. Yeah, it just got lost over time. And I think, you know, because they were so wealthy, I think they kept a lot under wraps. So a couple of things, interesting things kind of happened all at once. So Norbert O'Donnell, like I said, he buys the property in the early 2000s. He and his family move into the house. And then on the there's an adjacent building that he opens up a winery. And he no sooner moves into the house and there's all kinds of paranormal activity going on in the house. And he too was a non-believer. I interviewed him a couple of years ago for the tour. And he said, you know, Jen, I did not believe in any of this stuff until I moved into this house that's going on. And right around that same time, a family member of the fields. Now, if you remember, there's no direct descendants. Mary Alice was their only child. She had no children, but there are still family you know, extended family members in Berwick to this day um, of the Jackson family and the Field family. And one of the family members came across some journals. And in the journals was this complete story that I basically just told you that no one else, you know, up until that time knew. And so this person went to Mr. O'Donnell and shared the journals with him. And at that point in time, between that and the paranormal activity going on, you know, he, he was invested, let's put it that way. Um, and he was sort of, he was funny when I talked to him because he was really determined to find that gold. Um, so he looked into ground penetrating radar. Oh, um, he, he was invested. Yeah. Yes. Far too expensive. Apparently he did not tell me what the estimate was, but I know they do it on a lot of the television shows. I have no idea what it costs, but far too expensive. So he did what he thought was the next best thing, which was to hire a psychic. <laughs> to come to the house. So that was that's an interesting story. So the psychic picks up right away. She starts saying there was a robbery here, which is interesting because it does tie into the gold missing and what happened that right. night. And um, she had a, a ghost box or a spirit box with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if anybody on your show has ever talked about probably. Yep, we had have a couple investigators talk about spirit boxes okay. in the past. Yep. So, um, so the spirit box told them you need a pick and a shovel was one of the quotes. And the other one was um, robbery. Um, so the psychic also told Norbert, um, you're going to find things in the wall here at the house. She says um, it, it has to do with a, what she called a holy man. And his name is either Bill or Will. Now, what's interesting is at that time, Norbert hadn't told her, but he had already found those items in the wall. Um, And she was, you know, she hit the nail on the head. There were two books. He had to restore the fireplace in what would have been the hotel lobby when it was once a hotel. And they had to remove some bricks and pull things out of the wall. And he found these two books that belonged to a man by the name of William Steele. Um, Originally, the last name was Steele, and then changed to Steele. And if you look up William Steele, he is a very famous abolitionist and conductor on the Underground Railroad. His, His father was actually a slave. And he worked in the coal industry, which explains why he would have been in this area, because I think he was originally from the Philadelphia area. Okay. Um, 
but they were two Methodist Episcopal books. And one had to do, one I think was a Bible and the other one I believe had to do with abolitionism. So, so yeah, so he, he had already found those books and it just has a very interesting historical tie in then. So that's the story there. And the gold has never been found to this day. And that was a psychic telling the homeowner mm. about all that stuff found that you will yes. be finding in the walls? Yeah. She told him, you you will find this in the walls. And he, he already had, but he hadn't right. disclosed. Because he didn't, he wasn't thinking that they were tied into one, you know, each other at all. He's, ta- he's talking about the gold. You know, he doesn't think that she's going to be interested in the, you know, conductor on the Underground Railroad. That has nothing to do with what, you know, he's, he's talking about. So, um, so Yeah. Very interesting, especially that the gold is still never found. It's it's still out there, and it's a private residence now. So I always, I never want to mention, you know, exactly the exact location because I don't right. want, you want people, family, you know, yep. with, with their metal detectors. And you don't want the gold the hunters out there. <laughs> yeah, so that's the story. And Cornfield too. I forgot to mention the reason it got its name is because it's surrounded by cornfields and. Henry Field was from the South, so that's how he said cornfield. It's a cornfield. Cornfield. That's how it got its name. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It seems like Berwick has its fair share of paranormal activity, and I never, I never heard of some of these stories that you were mentioning tonight so far. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot more, um, but for the purpose of time, I'll, I'll keep it short and do one more for you. How's that sound? <laughs> that sounds fine. Yep. <laughs> We'd love to hear um, at least one more from you. Yeah. So the last. Um, person that I want to talk about is Dr. Frederick Santee. And he, he's an interesting fella. And full disclosure, Santee is actually from Wapwalapin, which is sort of just the Berwick area. It's just across the river, the Susquehanna River from Berwick outside of Nescapec. So I don't want you know, the Wapwalapin community getting mad at me for claiming Santee right. as a Berwickian. <laughs> just outside of town, um, it sounds like. Yes, yes. Um, so Now, before I, you even get started, as soon as you say that name, I remember a story that one of our listeners called in about, about uh-huh. a dream with this uh-huh. guy. But we'll let you go. Yes, yes. So I'm, I'm very interested in if that um, guest that you had on is happens to be listening. I'm very interested in speaking with her. Um, I'd love to interview her. Um, so first of all, I think it's very important whenever I speak or write about Santee, it's just very important to just stick to the facts. Um, A friend of Santee's that I interviewed last summer told me to take everything that you hear about Santee with one giant grain of salt. Um, So I always do, but he's a fascinating man either way you look at it. But there are two very distinctive camps when it comes to Santee. There's those people who believe he was the good country doctor and those people who believe he was Satan himself. Um, So we'll kind of just tell different sides of the road there for sure. Yes. Yes. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll state all the facts and we'll let the the listeners decide, um, what they think And the little community of Wapwalapin, which has, I think between three and 400 people living in it, they're quite literally split down the middle of, of what they believe. So just a real quick history lesson on Santee. I think it's important to the story here. So he's born in Wapwalapin in 1906 And by the age of three, he was reading in both English and German. Um, His father would parade him um, around Berwick. He would take him to the local drugstore 
prop him up on the counter and say, Frederick, spell Constantinople um, and kind of show off, you know, how intelligent his little boy was. His father was a doctor um, as well. Um, he attends, attends Harvard at the age of 14. And I believe at that time he was the younger, I don't know if he still holds that record, but I believe he was the youngest person to ever attend Harvard. And he receives his degree at the age of 16. At that time, he goes to Oxford University and he's studying classical languages at this time. So by the time he gets to Oxford, he's reading in German, Latin, Greek and Sanskrit. So he's he's not studying to be a medical doctor quite yet, but it's while he's at Oxford that he gets introduced to the occult. And he studies under all the top occultists in Europe at that time, including probably the most popular one, I believe, would be Aleister Crowley. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because Ozzy Osbourne wrote a song about him. You might know that song, Mr. Crowley. Um, so, it does so ring a bell. I'm not, I, I don't know if I know it by heart, but it does ring a bell. Yeah, no, yeah, no, same. But I, I did, you know, as I was researching, I thought, how do I know that name? And that's why I know that name. So just an interesting tie in there. So he studies the occult under, under Crowley. And coincidentally, at Oxford, he is on a Rhodes Scholarship as well. So the man, there's no de- denying that the man was highly, highly intelligent. From Oxford, he goes on to the University of Berlin, where he gets his first PhD. And it's while he's at the University of Berlin that he gets um, introduced and initiated into witchcraft. So now we've kind of morphed from the occult into witchcraft. Um, things get a little cloudy in this in this time frame for him as well. He does travel the world um, studying all different languages. He goes to uh, Egypt. He goes to North Africa. He goes all over Europe. Um, And it's during this time that Santee claims when he's at the University of Berlin that he meets a man whose name you might know um, is Adolf Hitler. I've heard of Um, him a few times in the past. (laughs) You may know that name. Um, He meets Hitler and he becomes Hitler's personal homeopathic doctor. He also claims at, during this time that Hitler fathers a child with a woman, a woman from England, and Santee adopts this little girl. And when he returns to the United States, he brings her with him. Now, remember, grain of salt. Mm-hmm. But he did claim this. I, I talked to several people that Santee had told this story to personally. So he returns to the States, ends up getting his uh, doctorate, and finally his, his, you know, his medical PhD um, from Johns Hopkins, and he begins to teach at several different universities. Um, I, I, I can't even go through all the names. There are many, but he never gets tenure at any of them because of his occultist beliefs. Um, he marries his first wife, they eventually divorce, marries his second wife, and then we'll kind of fast forward a little bit um, to the good stuff. So in 1963, he takes over his father's medical practice and returns to Wapwalapin, the little community, after he has traveled the world. He moves back to this small little town where his dad was the good country doctor. His dad was known to provide free services for the poor, um, you know, do or provide services, you know, for gifts and things like that, that people could afford. And he takes over and, and does the same thing for the community. 
but it's during this time where he, number one, he meets what will eventually become his high priestess. Um, and we'll call her Lady Phoebe. I do know Lady Phoebe's real name, but I know she still has family in the area, so I don't want to use it. Um, but okay. that was her high priestess name, and he becomes Lord Merlin. Okay. And the two of them refer, they are each married to separate people, but, and they refer to each other as platonic soulmates. He brings in a woman by the name of Sybil Leak, and that name might ring a bell too. She was a famous astrologer um, and practicer of witchcraft in the 60s and 70s. Um, he, they meet her in New York City, and they bring her to Wapwallapin to help them start their coven. Okay, now Sybil Leak had a coven called the Coven of the Horsa because she liked horses. So Santee liked cats. So his coven became the coven of the Kata. And there are still people to this day that are in his coven, coven of the Kata in the area. Um, I do know that. Um, Lady Phoebe was, she started off as a patient of Santee's. She had some type of like a, a, a degenerative arthritis, which caused her, I think she had one leg that was shorter than the other and she kind of walked funny and she also had a prosthetic nose. So okay. he cared for her. Um, and what I was told by Santee's friend that I interviewed last summer, he felt he, he is on the side of the good country doctor, coincidentally, that friend, he felt strongly that all of this was sort of a ruse and just this fantastical world that Santee created for himself. And it was all to make Lady Phoebe feel better about herself. Okay, kind of so, odd, but still, okay. I guess I okay. could see that. <laughs> Doesn't erase the fact that he studied the occult and witchcraft yeah. in college um, and brought civil league here. Um, and they were known, their coven was known to have seances every Friday night. I actually interviewed a woman whose mother was one of Santee's employees. And this is probably a good time to talk to you about his employees. So he only hired women and they were his nurses slash secretaries slash librarians because he also had a bookstore adjacent to his um doctor's office. Seems like he dabbled in a lot of different things. Yes. Yes. So, um, the women there that worked for him had a very specific dress code. They had to wear short skirts or dresses, black pantyhose, high heels, and in the wintertime fur coat. He liked high women's high heels so much that he, um, actually sold them in his doctor's office. So you could very go very odd. <laughs> for health reasons and then you could buy yourself a pair of high heels while you were there so yeah i guess as you do <laughs> so mark kais actually i spoke with him and he did your show as well yep Listen he was on i believe our first year he was one of our oh, first guests good okay yeah he's great so he actually did an investigation of what was known as the nurse's house, which was directly across the, the road. And I, I can't even say street because in Wapwallapin, it's just this teeny tiny little road. Um, the nurse's house, the gentleman and his family that lived there were, were having all kinds of paranormal activity going, thing, going on there. Things were flying off the walls. His children's toys 
would turn on by themselves. So he would take the batteries out and then, and they would still go off without the batteries in them. Um, his children claimed to see a man with mean eyes is how they described it. Um, he also told me he watched a black mass kind of come out of the wall one time. So he hired Mark and the team to come. And if anybody is interested, they ended up filming a television show um, about the investigation there. Um, the television show, The Haunted, I think you can still access it on YouTube, I believe. And the name of the episode is The Coven of the Kata. So if anybody's interested in checking that out. But I'm trying to think, too, what Mark had told me, because he had told me some interesting stories when he interviewed. He was the one who told me about the Hitler stuff as well, mm -hmm. because he had talked to some people. Um, he Oh, he knew that the daughter's name was Tao, um, T-A-O, I believe. And she was one of his nurses. She she worked there. So she was here in Wapalopan, whether she is was actually... Hitler's daughter. I was going to say, was that CNT's daughter or the one Hitler's daughter you were speaking yeah, of? Yeah, so his adopted daughter. Okay. That's the only child he ever had that was supposedly Hitler's biological child. Another just interesting little anecdotal story, because um, I have been down the Santee rabbit hole for well over a year now, and I'm always doing research, and I just discovered something recently. Just That's just like a fun little quirky story. So um, the movie Ghostbusters, um, Ghostbusters 2, in fact. Okay. Um, so if you've seen that movie, you know that the, the main character is this Vigo, the Carpathian. He's the guy in the yep. painting. Do you remember who I'm, do you know who yep, I'm talking about? Yep, I know who you're about? talking about. Yep. Okay. So Vigo, the Carpathian, um, when the Ghostbusters, Dan Aykroyd's character, goes to do research on him, they find a book about him and it's called Mad Men, Martyrs, and, or no, excuse me, Magicians, Magicians, Martyrs, and Mad Men. Now it's a, it's a fake book, you know, for the movie. Right. But um, there's a gentleman by the name of Travis McHenry, who is a current occultist, and he studied at Bloomsburg University. And so he got obsessed with Santee, you know, being in this area. And he decided watching the movie Ghostbusters 2, that that was too cool of a name to not actually be a real book. So he decided to write a real book with that title. And one of his featured characters in that book is none other than our Santee. friend Frederick Santee. <laughs> so, so Santee even has a tie-in with Ghostbusters. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. But yeah, Santee definitely sounds like a very interesting character with all the stuff you described hearing that story a few years ago with the lady with her dream. Yeah. Yeah. Now, was there any tie-in with dreams with Santee? Was he, is that something that he studied or anything? Yeah, not that I know of. The only thing I can think of is that, you know, he he did, you know, he had that written on his gravestone about returning. And um, there were one of the women that I interviewed, her, her mother was one of Santee's nurses. She said there was always mystery surrounding his death. So he dies in 1980. He was sick. I, I can't remember if he had cancer or something. He had something terminal. Um, and But she said there was always mystery surrounding his death that maybe his death had actually been assisted. Um, you know, he was he was already dying. Right. Now, then the friend of Santee's that I interviewed 
disagreed with that wholeheartedly. No, he died, he died from natural causes. Again, the two extremes. Um, but he was kind of obsessed with returning. So the only thing I can think of with the dreams is that perhaps that's his way of coming back. He's able to get into people's dreams. Mark Kais also interviewed a neighbor who told him that Santee had told him that he had accidentally opened a portal and he would spend the rest of his life trying to close it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I think he did all of these things n- never really with malintent. Right. But he just sort of perhaps, got himself in the trouble, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like the people who use Ouija boards and then they regret it. So anyway, yeah, he's an interesting fella. Yeah, and if anyone did want to hear the story with the CNT and the dreams, the lady called in. It was our uh, campfire episode part two, if you want to look back and anyone want to hear that is listening now. But yeah, he definitely sounds like an interesting character and right in your area. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of unusual. And I, and I grew up not really knowing much about him. You know, in high school, it was fun to like drive past his house because there's actually pentagrams. They're still there. There's pentagrams carved into the woodwork um, on the porch. And so it was kind of like, oh, drive by Santee's house and see if you see any ghosts, you know. But I didn't I did not know anything about him um, until I started researching him, you know, about a year or so ago. So now is there people living in his house now or is it vacant? There there are. There are. And I tried to locate them. I tried to, you know, knock on their door several different times to interview them. And I have a feeling they get a lot of that and they didn't really want to be bothered. So. Yeah, especially with pentagrams on your house. I mean, I guess I guess they yeah. probably do have quite a few people maybe knocking on their door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to share before we wrap things up? Yeah, no, I, I think that's it. I think I talked enough now. <laughs> <laughs> but you did have some very interesting stories. Well, good. I, I'm glad you enjoyed them. <laughs> and if any viewer or any listener would like to get more information about the Historical Society or maybe take a tour, what's their best way to get in contact? Um, well, you can check out our Facebook page, Borough Historical Society, um, or, ch- or check out our website. Um, and again, we give tours at the Jackson Mansion every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Saturday. And our haunted tour this year, I can tell you, is October 13th and 14th. It's Friday the 13th, so it's a real easy Ooh, date to okay. remember. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Creepy Side of NEPA. If you have a story or maybe you have an idea for an upcoming episode, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at ghost at WNEP.com. Or you could also contact us through our Facebook page, WNEP's Creepy Side of NEPA. Until next time, enjoy the creepy side of NEPA. This has been the creepy side of NEPA. If you have a spooky story that took place in northeastern or central Pennsylvania, Send it to ghost at WNEP.com for your chance to share it on an upcoming episode. We're dying to hear from you. <laughs>